Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I right, were actually putting this on the beginning because some big news dropped today. Danny demanded to do at least a 10-minute segment on the big news of the day. And then after this, Kevin Pelton will join us to project the 2017 draft. Uh, but Danny, what is it? What happened? Why must we talk right now at this moment? On the one-year anniversary of the Cleveland Cavaliers win, their first title, title win, they announced that David Griffin and the franchise will be departing. And the biggest issue here is is the timing both broad scale and narrow scale. Yeah, let's make two no two ways about it here. Dan Gilbert completely screwed over David Griffin here. If he wasn't going to pay him. Now, of course, the reports from McMenamin said, oh, it's, there's a difference in the direction of the franchise. That's would be a surprise to me. I'm guessing this is about money because Gilbert is paying a bunch of money already. And he also has demonstrated many a time that he does not really value the GM position. I think that a lot of people have said that he probably should value the GM position because David Griffin did an outstanding job in Cleveland, both in terms of manipulating the salary cap. Uh, although Gilbert, from what I hear, some of the, he like kind of gives credit to some of the underlings there more than he does Griffin. But nonetheless, like Griffin is executing these moves. He's got great relationships around the league. Highest character guy. Never heard anyone say a single bad thing about David Griffin. And so Gilbert, if he wasn't going to pay him, how about you let him uh, interview or at the very least you can just say, hey, you know, we're going to part ways at the end of this time. So Atlanta, maybe you can hold off or, or Milwaukee, you know, the day after Milwaukee introduces John Horse, now all of a sudden it's not going to work out with David Griffin or, or Orlando as well would have been very interested to talk to, to Griffin as well. Now he's screwed. He can't go any of those places. He's probably going to have to sit out for a year uh, and, and he's not sitting out a year like he got fired because his contract just came to an end. So he's just going to have to sit there you know, not making any money probably maybe he'll do tv or something but like dan gilbert screwed him like i mean there's really i i don't see any other way to look at it than that and not only that but it, it from david aldridge's reporting griffin was working on a jimmy butler trade within an hour of when this was announced so he was still doing his job still fulfilling his contract and all of that and i, I oh, oh, and to by the way one thing we should say too which i meant to get to yesterday but we didn't have time was uh his contract does not end at the end of july i think that had been reported to somewhere else earlier but no it ended june 30th so i mean he's he's out as of right now it sounds like uh, just just to be clear because we'd said end of july previously but no it's actually uh june 30th which is when most contracts in the league end right it makes sense with that but so griffin's job was also more impressive particularly this season in light of what appear to be specific constraints put on by dan gilbert i.e saving him money they kept roster spots for most of the year for mo williams for mike dunleavy with the primary purpose of that being that they could have eventually trade those contracts and save Dan Gilbert some money. They did that. They ended up, you know, maybe that was part of why they had to actually give up 
up a first in the Corver trade was because they were taking on bad salary. I don't know for sure how that would have broken out. But I mean, the Amon Shumper J.R. Smith trade worked out really well for them. Channing Fry, the contracts they re-signed J.R. Smith to. And yes, David Griffin does not deserve credit for LeBron James signing there. And LeBron James yeah, is the but franchise But he did pave changer. the way. They did make the moves to get him. You know, like they, they, they opened up salary and then they were able to, you know, the Kevin Love trade that they did as well. That worked out pretty well for them also. Uh, you know, the Mozgov trade was something that they desperately needed. I mean, remember they started that year getting Dion Waiters, you know, getting value for him at the time was very impressive. I mean, he has a very, very good resume. The masterful use of the Brendan Haywood contract, uh, trading for that contract, and then turning that into subsequent trade exceptions where they're able to get off of Anderson Verjao. They're able to get Fry. They're able to offload salary using that. Like all that was very impressive. And what do you make of the fact? So, so I mean, I think he clearly is a top 10, top five GM, certainly deserved to keep his job. Although this, it should be made clear this isn't a firing. It's just, you know, the contract is over. But clearly, they Gilbert, if he'd been willing to pay him, I think he'd still be there. You know, you just probably didn't want to pay him five million a year or what, or what it is that like a, a really good GM deserves um, in this market. So, do you make anything of these reports from Dave McMenamin that there was a difference in the direction of the like that the franchise wanted to go like between Gilbert and Griffin because to me the only thing that comes to mind that that could be is trading Kevin Love for someone else or not like that's the only thing I could see of the difference in direction or just Dan Gilbert's not going to pay and then and then Griffin knew LeBron was going to leave because of that if that were true there's a very narrow field because there isn't that much that Cleveland can do at this point and it's also why it's hard to evaluate David Griffin as a GM in the abstract because he didn't have to draft that many guys and he didn't have to really manage contracts other than guys that they had bird rights on I thought he did a really nice job with J.R. Smith in particular so yeah true Tristan Thompson is on an excellent contract as well. Yeah, another, I mean, he got he got paid a lot. Him. He got paid a lot of money. But as we look at it, contract signed in that year, we're looking good. And Thompson has outperformed expectations. I mean, he was a, a very important part of their championship team in 2016. So you have kind of all that stuff. And yeah, you're right. The vision, you know, I mean, theoretically, they could argue about trading Kyrie Irving. I doubt it. I mean, that doesn't really seem like it was on the table. So yeah, I guess it could be Kevin Love. But that difference of opinion can be resolved by the owner saying one way or the other. It's not like a GM is going going to think about Sam Presti in this case, just say, no, I refuse to do that and fall on the sword. That's not the way this works. If an owner tells a GM, this is what I want to do, the GM does it. So unless but, he felt yeah. like he couldn't execute that plan, which doesn't sound like what it was, it's a little bit concerning. So now where does Cleveland turn? Uh, David Aldridge reporting that their assistant GM, Trent Redden, is also out uh, in maybe loyalty to Griffin. And Woj had reported previously that a lot of younger guys in their front office had offered to go elsewhere and did not take them out of loyalty to David Griffin uh, as well. Uh, how many of those guys are going to be there? And then the name that Woj uh, has now floated and, and a few others as well, Chauncey Billups expected to emerge as a candidate for a president of, of basketball operations. Oh yeah, that's going to go well architect of the i believe the name is the killer threes and the big three so yeah i mean it, and you think about <laughs> think about the timing here i mean the draft is three days away free agency is a little bit over a week after that and cleveland has this huge offseason i mean lebron james is going to be a free agent a year from now this is really their last shot to prove everything like right there and there looks like they're gonna eat first of all they have to figure out what the heck they're doing and then they have to go through from there and while you don't want to be overly dramatic you have to look back at 
at at some of the other things that Dan Gilbert's done and say, this is how you poison a well. Because not only is this, you know, like coming on the heels of trashing the best player in the history of his franchise when he chose to leave, but you poison the well for everyone in your front office because David Griffin was well-liked and was popular. So you screwed all of those guys or women, I don't know for sure if they're the gender composition. And everybody, the NBA is not a, a big world. It's a very small world. And everybody knows how this looks and what this means. And so taking a job in Cleveland now, taking a job for Dan Gilbert means something very specific now. And he's not going to be able to wash that away. Well, and reports have already indicated that relations with LeBron James and his team uh, are not really that great still. This sure as hell isn't going to help that, you would imagine. And just something to remember, Cavs fans, if LeBron leaves again, just remember like whose side you're taking in this dispute like would you rather take dan gilbert's side or would you rather take lebron james's like it's a pretty clear choice to me even if you know you're rooting for laundry as jerry seinfeld always says um so this also now the crazy thing about it was griffin supposedly is working on all these deals uh and we only have a little bit more time left here but dave mcmenamin reported that quote the cavaliers have already been offered george in a multi-team trade scenario that would cost them kevin love and involve an unnamed third team so that means actually that there is some deal that the pacers would do with them uh including kevin love sending love to a third team what we talked about that scenario last week what some of those deals could be i mean if that deal actually really exists that the pacers would do i mean unless you know maybe it's like cleveland 2021 and 2023 first rounders and then maybe you worry about that a little bit but you could hopefully put some protection on there i mean maybe the the draft picks that's the only thing that i think would be a problem though like if that's deal is remotely out there as reported i would be all over that uh i I mean you know i even if it's only for one year i mean hey lebron might leave after a year anyway so you might as well just maximize this year and go hard i mean one more year of kevin love is not really worth that much yeah and kp wrote a nice piece on on the difference between the two i think that it would really help out lebron james because they would have another guy they can throw at durant defensively and you're really only thinking about the finals with that because we know the Cavs are good enough to make it through and they can get bodies at the four as as good as kevin love is they can make that work in the regular season and they'll have minutes so they can get players to take less money to go in and i mean now they'll have to get a gm to recruit them but they can still work in that way but yeah it's we're seeing a lot of smoke with george and with with jimmy butler which is exciting and we'll have to see where it works out yeah i don't think cleveland has the assets to get butler i don't either i don't i mean butler is better than kevin love i think and and that would have to be the basis of any package there um I think that 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 sounds more to me like oh Cleveland's involved like you know Boston if you or Minnesota you guys pay up now for for Jimmy and there also could be a component too with this Lakers thing where the Pacers want to make it sound like George is going to go to the Cavs and the Lakers would have to be worried that he would like it in Cleveland and want to stay there with LeBron and then just never become a free agent again so maybe that would inspire the Lakers to offer more as well so there there are a lot of moving pieces here a lot of smoke uh, uh, but and, and again maybe the issue is dan gilbert doesn't want to trade kevin love and and david griffin said hell yeah we're gonna trade him for for paul george um yeah, it could be. I'll make a quick promo since this yeah. is the end of my segment that I wrote a piece for SI on the Lakers logistics of getting Paul George, basically what the contracts will look like either way. So you can check that out at Sports Illustrated. Yeah, we, uh, we actually have a couple more news things we can get to here. Uh, it was released that there is, and, and KP talks about this because we recorded this earlier, uh, alluded to it. The There is some additional news on that 2019 pick, uh, that Sacramento one that's going to Boston. Uh, if the 2018 Lakers pick does not 
not convey this protected two to five in that year 2019 the better of philadelphia or sacramento goes to boston unless it falls into the top one the first overall pick in which case you know obviously the other one goes so that's a way to it's not totally unprotected philly ownership supposedly would not give up the number one pick under any circumstances and so that would there is a chance then that if philly is pretty good you know boston could just end up stuck with like you know the number 15 pick or the number 20 pick or something if that sacramento pick somehow uh becomes the first overall pick which wouldn't be totally uh impossible although zach Lowe did say on a podcast today that he's hearing that sacramento might again try to get a little bit better this year so maybe they won't be as bad as everyone thinks that they will be and then uh sean Sharani of yahoo reporting that andre guadala will be testing the market he's supposed to potentially get offers up to around 20 million minnesota and then a few other teams that don't really have cat space orlando or, or chicago and atlanta were reported as potential suitors as well minnesota would be the one i'd be worried about and if i were minnesota i probably would throw 50 or, or 60 million bucks in guaranteed money at iguodala but this reporting by tim kawakami i still haven't had a chance to listen to your pod with him yet but personally i never bought this idea that eight, eight to 12 million was gonna well, I be don't realistic th- i don't think it's yeah. reporting i think it's just his feel on it that, that, yeah, that okay. that's where he think it's where he thinks it's gonna go i don't recall when we talked about it i don't recall him like having a source on it it was just where he thinks it's going to go and i think it's going to be a little higher than that personally like 14 yeah, or may or maybe he leaves and and if he does that would be pretty inexcusable to me by joe like uh to just not pay him what it would take to, to keep him around unless it's like 30 million a year or something but uh all right i think that's all we got here stay tuned for kevin pelton to join us right now we weren't going to do this one this year because I've already really imposed on this gentleman quite so much already, including for the upcoming mock-off season. But he insisted to come on and uh, tell everyone why they are wrong, according to his stats projections. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, of course, KP. And in fact, we were talking just before we started here that you and I are actually in pretty close alignment. Last year, when we didn't do this pod, your stats were very low on Jalen Brown. He was like 113th or something like that. I really liked him. I had him number two on my board we had that significant disagreement but it seems like i didn't have access to your sets you actually came out with them later than usual this year it seems like we're pretty much in agreement like my personal scouting assessment and your statistical assessment uh yeah i think i shared some of them in the group chat that we have the uh the salary dork chat that we have but uh, I guess the one thing would be that I, I do generally have Ball ahead of Fault. Yeah, that's a, an interesting one. Do you feel that because he is so unique, you should have less confidence in the statistical projection than you would for a more conventional type of player? That's interesting because, I mean, you don't have the same proof that his style will translate that you would have with someone like Fultz who, you know, has a much more conventional game for a top pick. At the same time, generally speaking, I would say that uniqueness is a good sign for a player because of the fact that, you know, it it means that you have special skills. Yeah, it's interesting. David Locke, our mutual friend, has made the observation that when your comp is like one other guy who's been unique in NBA history, like if your comp is Charles Barkley, Charles Barkley had to be so special to succeed in the way that he did with the body type that he did, that that his belief is that means that you are, are more likely to fail. I don't know that I'd put Lonzo in that category in terms of his body type and athleticism, but just the type of game he has, the low usage, shooting, never getting to the foul line, the, the assists, good steal and block rates for a point guard. 
all those are, are pretty maybe more conventional but he's also got a lot of weird things about him yeah and i i definitely think the error bar around him is higher than it is with faults like the the worst thing you can say in draft analysis is that someone is a safe prospect because there is no such thing as a safe prospect there really isn't but it, it seems like those guys fail more often than anybody else frankly i would that would be a good study to do if you could go back like sam miller in baseball does a really good job of taking all these subjective things and then going back and actually analyzing them i would love to do that if i had the time in the nba's uh, how, how often the safe prospects have worked out or the nba ready prospects have actually been ready but yeah that's actually another one like that i've always wondered too is how many guys who were deemed to be like character red flags in some way not even like you know they got in trouble like you know a demarcus cousins type of reputation coming out of school like how many of those guys actually end up succeeding and you really i mean if you think about it if you look at you know the top 25 players in the league i can't think of any of them maybe if you want to put cousins in that category who had those type of questions coming out of school yeah i mean cousins would be the obvious one that comes to mind i don't know it's a little tough to say you know whether there was anyone else where that was a concern where it wasn't as obvious as it was with cousins I mean, I think that's one place, you know, people ask me all the time, like, what are the differences between kind of the stats that publicly available sources, you know, that I do or or someone, you know, that you could find on nylon calculus, for example, things like that, and then what teams are doing. And, you know, besides the sport view stuff, I think maybe one of the most interesting differences is you have this access to this huge huge database of scouting reports that you can just call through and figure out, for example, you know, are there different skills that our scouts are better at projecting than others or places where, you know, the statistical projections are better at projecting this skill than scouts are. And that would be a fascinating one to do. Do you think it's be useful at all to say, okay, he's good character. All right. What does that mean? So now maybe we're going to just give a numerical ranking to just like, okay, how hard of a worker is this guy like how good of a teammate is he like you know as kevin arnovitz likes to talk about like how much how good of a co-worker is this guy and to just put a numerical ranking on that internally so that you can actually go back afterwards and say all right you know this is what just kind of make it easier to track essentially mm-hmm. whether your observations are actually working out or not but obviously it's a hard thing to reduce to a number yeah especially because then you'd have the danger of is it confirmation bias or anchoring that you know i rated this guy uh, a nine in terms of character coming out i'm going to continue to rate him highly because it's so subjective that you know i can pick and choose using motivated reasoning the aspects of character that back up my assessment and ignore the ones that uh, contradict it yeah and the, the other thing you were talking about too in that good pod that you did with, with arnovitz is this idea of like well maybe it's kind of good to be an asshole but maybe like not too much of an asshole or, and, and you know if you're but that like is what makes you be motivated and take on all comers and you know be fearless in crunch time and stuff like that so it does it does seem like it's kind of difficult and and i'm in a difficult situation here one guy i really want to talk to you about is dennis smith to me on film the clear third best prospect in the draft got some issues in terms of his knee got some issues in terms of in theory what happened at nc state that he's not really supposed to be the greatest teammate i didn't see any of that when i watched him in person at the lower levels but it was definitely clear even just watching games of him at at nc state where does he come out in your projections and how much of a downgrade do you think the fact that he suffered a torn acl when he was still in high school uh how much does that factor in so he was sixth in the stats only projection and then four 
forth when you go to my consensus projections, which factor in where a player ranks on uh, Chad Ford's top 100, because you know it's basically uh, a way of estimating where they would go in the draft, which if you look at past results using where players actually were drafted, this uh, all, all credit to Lane Vashro, who now works for, uh, uh, I can't remember what the, the name no, of the organization. Oh, oh yeah, it's... Uh, it, Cranky uh, Sports and Entertainment. Some w- Walmart whatever. Neighborhood Market. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because <laughs> he do, he does more than just the Nuggets for that organization. Also works on some uh, LA Rams stuff, among others. I think Colorado Avalanche. But yeah, uh, so he he introduced this concept that you know basically that if we combine the statistical projections with where guys are actually drafted, it becomes a much more powerful predictor of how they're going to do in the NBA. So anyway, when you factor those both in, uh, Smith is fourth on my draft board behind the two the top two guys, Ball and Faults, and then Jonathan Isaac, who I think we both like, but I maybe like a little bit more than you. I mean, the ACL, you know, unless there's a long-term worry about that, I mean, the fact, you know, usually it's the first season back that you see this effect where, you know, guys struggle with their shooting, you know, the first maybe 10 to 20 games that they play, and that kind of tanks their performance that season. So, you know, for him to be where he is statistically coming back from the ACL is actually kind of encouraging in that regard. I I thought it was an interesting contrast because, you know, I had to, all year long people have had questions about Markel Fultz and the fact that he was playing on this Washington team that went 2-16 and 16 in Pac-12 play, uh, part of that after he was shut down for the season due to injury. And, you know, I was I watched him very closely as a UW alum who attended all the Pac-10 games uh, that he played uh, where I was in town, and I didn't really see a lot of examples of his effort level changing or, you know, him being a bad teammate. When I watched Dennis Smith, I kind of saw a little bit more of that. It seemed like he was coasting through some of the games I watched. Yeah, it's interesting. I I thought that Markel's defense actually is much more problematic, at least as of now, than Dennis Smith's because I at least saw times where Dennis Smith really like would get motivated and heat up the ball and he got a lot of steals. I think Fultz had a fair amount too, but Fultz just drifted all the time. You know, play they played some zone and he just like I just never saw him put forth any effort hardly at all unless he was going for like a chase down block or something. But really, getting over a screen, he just like you know I never saw that. for He's, he's going to definitely in Philly now, which is uh, we got to talk about that trade too. Uh, it's going to be interesting for him to see. You know, he's going to have TJ McConnell behind him. Like, w- will there be times when TJ McConnell actually plays over him because Brett Brown just like can't get him to defend? You know, I, I could actually see that happening at times. Um, Jonathan Isaac and Josh Jackson are a, a comparison. I liked Isaac more than Jackson. I'm really concerned about Jackson shooting, but in th- other than the fact that Isaac shot it, I mean, and Jackson actually shot a better percentage from three point range than Jonathan Isaac did so why is Josh Jackson so much lower in the stats only Josh 34 Jonathan Isaac all the way up at two yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's interesting because of the fact that in some ways Jackson is the type of prospect that my system usually likes because he has good steal and block rates. But, uh, you know, in his case, uh, Isaac also has that. So he sort of matches him in that regard. Uh, better rebounder and a higher percentage two-point shooter. But then I, I think probably, you know, the the single biggest factor, uh, a, a significant factor in is the fact that he's eight months younger. And, and that's an important part of my projections. Yeah, well, that 
I mean, there's got to be more to, to explain it than that to make up for a 32 slot difference, right? Like the, for sure, is yeah, it, yeah. Isaac uh, projects is the better player next season, which is the other component of it, along with the your age. Yeah, and I think I like Isaac's fit better. I mean, Jackson was playing the four, but you know, he's six eight and two hundred pounds. Probably can't do that in the NBA. Whereas Isaac, at some point, with that nine one standing reach, you could expect him to maybe get there. And that's I mean, Jackson, like how much does his low free throw percentage 57 percent factor into to his low projection it, only to the extent that it makes him a less efficient score uh even though you know my research has found that uh free throw percentage is actually a better predictor of nba three-point percentage slightly than college three-point percentage that's not actually factored into the projection specifically basically the three-point projection you know instead it's just largely regressed to the mean so you know, neither of those guys uh, project to shoot very well from three-point range uh, because of, you know, small, their limited number of attempts. But so it's not specifically a factor in terms of predicting his three-point percentage, only in terms of his scoring efficiency. So number one on your stats only, and I mean, this is not your official projections, by the way, like you're, you would say your official projections are the combination of the big board and the stats only, right? That's what you kind of say, like, hey, these are my projections here. They definitely, yeah. Yeah, I mean they they hew much closer to like what I would subje- how I would subjectively rank the players. But just in terms of stats only, Lonzo Ball is number one, 18% usage rate. Jonathan Isaac, number two, 20% usage rate. Is usage rate just not that important? Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I think that's a little bit unusual. I, I don't know that that's necessarily common for my projections. But, you know, one of the things I'll do from time to time is kind of a sanity check is go back and look at, if you look at, you know, which guys out underperformed or overperformed their projections, basically how their actual performance compares to their projections. And then, you know, compare look at the correlation between that and various different skills and you know i don't recall finding that there's any relationship between that and usage rate where you know it's systematically overvalued or undervalued that's interesting because you would think that just the ability to create your shot is something that would be very important and very indicative of your ability to do that at the next level and those are the most valuable players who have high usage and and high efficiency generally in the nba but and ball was playing on a loaded team isaac also you know took a, a backseat to guys like Dwayne bacon uh, maybe he could have done more uh, most you know i think over like close to 50 percent of his possessions were like spot up possessions uh, according to synergy who the other guy who is really rated very highly but comes out poorly in the stats only is jason tatum where are the deficiencies for him in his statistical resume yeah as i noted in my analysis of the draft board what's what's interesting about tatum is that he is i think the only guy in the top 100 for chad ford maybe the only guy in, in my database at all who does not have any stats of kind of the core core stats where he's in the top 25%, which is what I consider guys' statistical strengths, or in the bottom 25%, which is their statistical weaknesses. He's basically just kind of average for an NBA-bound small forward at pretty much everything. And that's you know kind of where overall he comes out. Yeah, watching him on film, the only thing that strikes me as really a standout skill for him is just his ability to create uh, isolation jump shots from the mid post. And, you know, that's not something that's going to show up necessarily on statistical translations, but he's not, I don't consider him like particularly athletic. He's got some pretty good length, good rebounder, uh, but, and not really a great three point shooter yet. And he seems to have a type of stroke where it's not going to be easy for him to transition to the three point line. He's going to have to like get 
a little bit more compact shoot on the way up a little bit more to transition to the nba3 so yeah like i think that's a very interesting way of categorizing him because there wasn't anything about his skill set other than just kind of his jab step game iso jumper post up jumper that really stood out to me as like oh this guy is like a great prospect and now you can make the argument that hey just a wing who is like average or above on either end of the floor is actually a pretty valuable player. But my personal philosophy when it comes to top five picks is I want someone who has, you could conceivably see that he's going to be like a, a real star, a top. There's a path for him to become a top 20, top 30 player in the league. And I don't really see that for Tatum or Jackson. Maybe if Jackson could become like Andre Iguodala, that's like your hope is that he could be that. But I don't think he's has quite the physical tools uh, that Andre did. Yeah, that's definitely the best case. Like, comparison for him um give me some sleepers here all right well i mean you know the first name that comes to mind is someone who's actually sleeping in plain sight josh hart who you know was in the running for all the national player of the year awards was one of the best players in the country and yet couldn't seem to overcome in scouts minds i think the fact that he played so poorly at last year's pre-draft camp when he went as a junior before withdrawing from the draft and you know even though he looks like, and, and to go back to that dangerous phrase, is NBA ready as a, of a guy as there is in this year's draft? He's still projected in the second round. Yeah. Uh, where do you have him in terms of, uh, I guess you got him at 16 and eighth in the stats, which is, that's always surprising to me when someone who's 22 rates out that highly because of how much you adjust for age. But he, he also like played well at the earlier in his career, which I know is important for your translation as well. Exactly. That's a big factor is he was actually, uh, you know, I have him actually rated more effective as a sophomore than he was as a junior. So that helps him out a lot. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's like statistical analysts did such a good job for a long period of time hammering home that age matters, age matters, age matters, because it, it, it does matter that that almost got distorted into like all old guys are bad prospects, which is not really the case when you look at it. I mean, someone like Draymond Green or Jay Crowder in the 2000s. 2012, you know, both those guys in the second round of the 2012 draft who were much older, but rated well as prospects because of the fact that they were so productive at the college level and lo and behold, have translated that to the NBA. Yeah. Jimmy Butler, another example of that as well, an older prospect who made incredible strides in his career after he was drafted even offensively. I will be right back with KP, but first this from Blue Apron. I am sad that the NBA playoffs are over, but I am happy that I now have even more time to cook and that's because i use blue apron some of the meals that i'm excited about cooking warm smoked trot and asparagus salad fingerling potatoes and garlic croutons spiced zucchini enchiladas if you're more of a vegetarian eater with creamy lime and tomato rice peach honey glazed chicken with smashed sweet potatoes collard greens and thai basil if you're not familiar with blue apron what it is is just a food delivery service that pre-portions out all your ingredients, sends it to your door once a week in some cool packaging that keeps it fresh, and they give you all the instructions you need, very basic recipe cards to make amazing home-cooked meals at home. There's no weekly commitment. You can skip a delivery if you want to. You can customize your recipes based on your preferences as well. What we like to do is actually just my girlfriend and I, we get the four-person meals and we actually will have leftovers, which are invariably outstanding as well. If you want to get started with Blue Apron, blueapron.com slash capspace will get you your first three meals free with free shipping. Blueapron.com slash capspace. That URL is easy to remember because we talk about capspace all the time in the program. Blueapron.com slash capspace. Make sure you go to that URL to let them know that you came from us. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, Josh Hart, who else? 
Uh, OG Anunoby. I mean, again, not someone who's a surprising name. He was, you know, I think a lottery pick much of the season before he tore his ACL, but it really seems like he is slipping at this point. The fact that, you know, he wasn't among the, uh, the players that Jonathan Giovanni reported have been invited to the draft to attend the draft, uh, 20 of them getting those invites. That's pretty disconcerting for him. Yeah, it is. And maybe the fact that there's talk he could miss the whole season or or that maybe this ACL, I mean, there's always like, they didn't say, oh, he tore his ACL right when it happened. It was just significant knee injury. And then it came out like four months later when he did a, a an article with Shamsarani of Yahoo that it was a torn ACL. So maybe there's something about it that's worse than your normal one. But my personal observation that I, I can't back this up with statistical analysis because I don't do that. I just use other people's statistical analysis. But uh, my subjective understanding has been that players who suffer one torn ACL at like 21 or earlier usually seem to recover like pretty well. Uh, it seems like the, that they don't necessarily lose athleticism. Like Baron Davis, you could put in that category. Dennis Smith looks as athletic as ever, maybe even more so at this point. 48 inch so, vertical, right? What'd you say? 48 inch vertical, right? Oh my God. Yeah. Where, where did we hear that? That was, was that like at the Lakers? Lakers uh, reportedly. Oh yeah. You know what? They had Zach Levine at like 46 a couple of years ago too. Like, yeah Dennis Smith doesn't believe that yeah yeah off of one foot it's possible actually I (laughs) I I could believe that uh but no Dennis Smith does not have a 48 inch vertical that is uh that is a typo but uh where we're oh yeah so and watching him certainly his offensive game seems pretty raw but and maybe he turns into you know a rich man's like Pascal Siakam uh but I I I don't think I would put so many of these GMs are like, oh, well, you know, we can't draft this guy like he can't play in the first season. Like, remember, all these teams passed on Nerland's Noel for that reason and drafted inferior players, I think, ahead of him. And yeah, but whoever you draft is going to suck in their first year anyway. Like, it shouldn't matter. Like, if you're drafting someone for what he's going to do in year one, like, I think you're already kind of blowing it. Yeah, I mean, especially at that point in the draft. I mean, you know, maybe in the second round, if you get someone that you think you can help you right away, well, that's, you know, a, a bigger difference because of the fact that, again, the expectations for that player are so low. But yeah, and, you know, be, like if Sam Hinkie were still around, it seems like this is a, definitely a guy he would try to find a way to draft. <laughs> yeah, and, and just his athleticism. I mean, I, I said he, someone said he unofficially had a seven six wingspan. Now he's measured at seven two. Still excellent for a, a guy with his profile. Another guy that you have rated very highly, number three in the stats only, is uh, Monty Morris out of Iowa State. Uh, he's ranked thirty sixth overall on the big board. Another uh, senior. I, I haven't watched that much film on him, but I, I was impressed with what I saw. And it does seem to me that point guards who are older point guards who do well in these translations, yeah, some of them don't turn out to be like starters. But if you're looking for a backup point guard, it seems like those are like some of the safer bets that we've had on the board. Even like Fred Van Vliet last year, to me, impressed in his limited time. Tyus Jones, another one of those guys of recent vintage who has rated well and has looked like he could be a very good backup point guard. Uh, yes, I was tre- tweeting about this with um Mark Whittington, who does some draft stuff. And uh, my tweet was, in playing the role of Fred Van Vliet this year, since Van Vliet was similarly high in these stats-only projections, I I think Morris is a better prospect because he doesn't have the same size concerns that Van Vliet did at, I believe, like 5'11". Yeah, he's like 6'3 or something, right? Yeah, I mean, the bigger issue with Morris is that, you know, he's 6'2 and a half, I guess, is what I have him measured at in shoes at the Combine. 
he's not an explosive athlete. He's you know probably not going to create a lot of offense for himself. Might be a little bit of a one-on-one defensive liability, but he is probably the single most sure-handed decision maker I have ever seen at the collegiate level. Yeah, because college, what's like the average college turnover rate? Like eighteen percent or something? And it, like- yeah, and when you have a point guard with an assist to turnover ratio of two, I think that's you know cause for celebration at the collegiate level. And Monty Morris had. <laughs> You know, if he didn't lead the NCAA in assist to turnover ratio, he was he was extraordinarily close to it. So someone who's going to come in and and this is again that perfect in that backup role, I think, not make a lot of mistakes. He shows the potential to shoot the three decently. It was at thirty eight percent last year, thirty eight percent for his career, seventy eight percent free throw shooter. So you combine those two skills, you should be able to play in the NBA for a long period of time. De'Aaron Fox. Number five uh, on the big board. I had him about at, at that range of now. I haven't watched. I've only watched. I think nine prospects so far. So it's. Uh, I'm just ranking them among some of the, that consensus top nine. I, the only one I haven't done yet is Monk. But you know, I had him right up there with Isaac for like number four, number five uh, on my board. Thirty eighth in the stats only projections, which is a surprise because. You know, I would have thought, hey, he's got a pretty high steal rate. Uh, you love that. He's at pretty high usage, scores reasonably well. What was it about him that uh, ranked him down in the depths at number 38 in the stats only projection? I mean, really, a lot of it was about scoring efficiency because of the fact that, you know, his three point percentage, uh, again, in the projection isn't necessarily a big issue in and of itself because it gets regressed so heavily to the mean. But the fact that he doesn't take a lot of threes is a major concern and didn't get to the free throw line a ton. So that leaves him pretty dependent on two pointers for his scoring. And that's kind of a tough way to make a living, especially if you're, you know, a, a relatively, you know, not a, you're not a big point guard, at least. He's, he's probably not undersized, but he's not a big point guard. Yeah, he at least has enough athleticism. It's not like nuclear athleticism, but it's pretty good. I worry that he's only a one position defender. I thought he got to the free throw line a lot. Is it just because because he has a high usage and so the the free throw per field goal attempt is not that high is is that what you use to measure it as opposed to just your raw number of free throws per possession yeah it's not bad i guess it's actually best of the point guards in the top of this year's draft so i guess it's just relative to to all positions the fact that point guards don't shoot that many free throws overall yeah because i think his free throw rate was like 45 percent or something like that as, as i remember I, I remember being like kind of impressed by that and just on film watching him because he's skinny i think that actually helps his free throw rate like if he gets bumped you'll see it uh and he's one of the few guys i've seen who's able to get the like feel the guy on his hip and just throw something up there call uh which as we know is uh maybe the most essential skill to efficient scoring in today's nba <laughs> sadly enough <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, but he's not going to be able to get those shots, those calls necessarily beyond the arc. And that's, you know, to me, the big concern with him is, as I've noted, is, you know, I, I wrote recently about the value of the pull up three in the NBA. And if you look at the list of the guys who were in the top 10 in pull up in th- threes off the dribble this season, it's basically every elite point guard except John Wall. So either you have to believe that Fox is going to be able to make that shot down the road or that he's an outlier on the scale of John Wall. Yeah, and he's not that type of athlete by any means, although he's, he's a good one. Now, that all said, I was going through and doing my subjective board today, and I, I've only gotten through the lottery basically so far. And I had De'Aaron Fox sixth, so we actually don't disagree on him that much. 
Wow. Okay. Yeah. And I want to get to that in a second, but you mentioned, and there's this list, right? Of point guards who are good at shooting off the dribble. Now, Kyle Lowry is on that. Goran Dragic is okay. Mike Conley is on that probably at this point. There's some of the guys who are good at shooting those when they're in college, but a lot of them just like got to be good at it as pros. Is there anything that you can point to, to help us predict other than just their free throw percentage, which of these point guards who can't shoot are going to figure it out and which ones aren't because that's the one thing that i've been most flunked by i mean i can look at like whether their shot looks broken mechanically or not but uh, other than that you know i mean mike conley never had like great mechanics he still kind of shoots it from down around his waist like there's is there anything you can point to to help us anticipate who might be one of these point guards who figures out how to shoot threes off the dribble? Yeah, that I haven't looked at. And I'm not sure that there's enough you know, data on this going back far enough to really be able to tell. Because, you know, uh, when looking at pull-up threes in college, I've been using Synergy, but they only started tracking that in the last year or two, I think. Yeah, so I, I guess we will be because there's so many guys like Lowry was a complete non-shooter at, at Villanova, right. and like if Mike Conley was taking a three when he was at Ohio State, he was had to be like absolutely wide open, and it's just I really struggle to figure out like which of these guys are going to kind of get it and which aren't. Um, all right, yeah, give me your uh, your subjective board here. Okay, so as I noted at the top, I have Ball one, Fultz two, Isaac three, Smith four, Josh Jackson five. Fox 6, Anunobi 7, Jason Tatum 8, Zach Collins 9, Malik Monk 10, Lowry Markinen 11, and then Donovan Mitchell in 12, and uh, Josh Hart at 13 was the last one I ranked. Yeah, so the biggest delta from conventional wisdom would be Josh Hart being higher and Jackson and Tatum a little bit lower. Yep. And, and Isaac higher, I guess. And Anunobi being higher. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's right. He's been talking, we're looking at him as not being a green room invite at this point. So I think maybe. Maybe it could just be that they're being conservative because some of the guys who have fallen, like you remember Kevon Looney in 2015, right? Like the guys who have these injury concerns, those are the guys who kind of seem to drop, and so maybe that's like they're being like overly conservative there. But it'd be interesting to see. Um, someone that I wanted to like because he had a very high profile coming out of high school, played a lot on, on USA teams, looks like he can move pretty well, got a big 7-5 wingspan, is Jared Allen. It doesn't appear, though, that you're as high on him. I, I'm in the same boat where I wanted to like him. Like, he's got, I when I watched him last year at Hoop Summit, I was like, this guy has the, the, the you know, kind of rim runner, rim protector skill set that I think is very useful in the league. Like, you know, I was hoping maybe kind of a Clint Capella type of player, but he he wasn't that that kind of shot blocker at Texas. His steal rate is ridiculously low given that he played in Shaka Smart's system and is as athletic as he is. And then his defensive rebound rate was not very good either. Yeah. Now he did play a lot at the four, which highlighted his mobility, but also maybe you're not at the, at the basket as much. Uh, the steal rate, you wouldn't think that that would affect things too much. With the defensive rebounding, maybe that could be a reason why that that was so much lower as well. We never talked about this, but would you ever consider for big guys trying to work in their team defensive rebound rate and see whether that was significant at all instead of just their individual defensive rebound rate just yeah, to capture it. like boxing out or or you know some of the same stuff you know the robin lopez effect basically yeah i mean that is a good idea especially if you had on versus off somehow and were able to to use that it also might help with teams where you've got multiple good rebounders on the same team and they sort of yeah. are you know only one guy can get it 
Although, uh, you know, the first team that I think, I guess, no, Willie Cauley-Stein has ended up being a slightly better defensive rebounder than was projected. But like Trey Lyles, that was one of the arguments in his favor. And he turned out to just not be a very good rebounder. Yeah, no, that's been the big disappointment for me about him is that he just hasn't been good enough at like the big man stuff. I think he could be a real player if he just could get to like average on the glass and protecting the rim for a power forward. Oh, and it it looks, by the way, that Texas, Texas was 261st in the country in defensive rebounding. Well, there goes that theory. (laughs) Shaquille Clare was not, not as good of a rebounder. That's the, uh, the undersized center who was playing alongside Jared Allen was not as good as him on the defensive glass. All right. Uh, how about Frank Nilatina, who 23rd in the stats only projections, 11th on the, the big board, 13th then overall. I noted just on film, his jumper looks pretty good. It seems to, to shoot well. I liked his defense a lot, but just doesn't really seem to be able to get to the basket much. Is that what ranked him lower than you know what his scouting projection is? I mean, I think it was mostly, you know, his. I have to pull this up with him uh, since he's not his season wasn't done so he doesn't have full projections as yet but uh i think it was more just about his efficiency uh relative to the quality of play in the french league so you know i guess you know 46% from the field isn't isn't bad uh really really low usage yeah he's playing a really small role on this you know veteran team that's playing for the french lnb championship right now and then low assist rate for a point guard somewhat similar reasons probably how is the french league it's let's see i it's definitely not as strong as you know spain and uh and and certainly the teams that are playing in the euro league and even the euro cup so it's it's a notch below even though it has still produced some good nba talent yeah that's kind of been my impression it seems like it might be getting a little bit better just with some of the names that that are playing there um they tend to have like the french players are pretty good but they don't necessarily have the same caliber of imports as some of the other top leagues yeah you know someone who is number 29 in your stats production and 82 on the big board is james blackman jr i could see him carving out a role as kind of like a jared bayless light type of guy like great shooter played in the hoop summit a couple of years ago but just you know not really incredibly athletic but as for a team that has a larger primary ball handler i could see him maybe carving out a role off the bench i haven't watched a ton of him yet uh, but what is it that the stats like about him to be 29 when he's not even considered you know in the conversation for being drafted right now a i did not realize he was that high uh and b i think it's primarily about the fact that his three attempt rate is so high uh, in conjunction with his three-point percentage and one of the unique features about my wins above replacement rating that is kind of the bedrock of this is that it includes a bonus for three attempts in terms of how they benefit your team spacing so that that uh, definitely works to his advantage the the name that i I had when I watched him play, this was more as a freshman since he got injured fairly early as a sophomore, and I, I didn't see a ton of him, was uh, Randy Foy. Huh. That's so Foy I think was Foy, more capable, Foy's a little more like, size. Yeah. Yeah. He's a little more physical, but that's so that's like that's just his statistical comp or just who you thought of? No, no, that's him? yeah, that's just who I thought of watching him play. Yeah. I think of him as like more of a pure shooter actually than than Foy, but you know, maybe not the playmaker that Foy was supposed know, to be. You know, his number one drafted. compass. Buddy healed. <laughs> well, I mean, if you get Buddy healed at uh in the second round, you actually did pretty well for yourself, probably. You did, uh, you did really well. I mean <laughs> the, of course, the difficulty here is, as I've been pointing out with people, which is why I don't really use similarity very much at all, is that it's Buddy Heald and then the other three guys are C.J. Wilcox, Andrew Gaudelock, and Alan Ray. So uh, 
yeah that may i mean that kind of makes sense there actually right all right it's it's probably too much time for on a guy who's probably not even going to get drafted any other guys who scares you the most let me ask you that question Hmm. i mean fox i think definitely someone who scares me because you know there is the alfred i mean not that it's the worst thing in the world but if you draft him you know when when there was talk about the lakers drafting him number two like if you draft alfred payton with the second pick in the draft like that's that's a pretty big deal you know, I was talking to a personnel guy the other day, and his theory was that, like, if you draft a point guard who's not, like, really an elite guy, that you're almost, like, signing your own death warrant, right? Like, if you look at, right. like, Emmanuel Moutier or or Alfred Payton, for example, right? Moutier had one of the worst rookie seasons in NBA history from an efficiency standpoint. The, the team was actually relatively efficient when he was out there at times, his rookie year. And then I think his sophomore season wasn't as bad offensively as some people might think it was i think he still has potential peyton kind of started to get it in his third year a little bit towards the end but you know a a shaky shooter and it's just if you're drafting a guy that you don't think is going to be like a good enough player early on that's going to make you look good now you're and you're going to start this guy now you're just consigning yourself to kind of sucking for like two or three years while this guy kind of figures it out and then is he even going to stick around for a second contract you're not if you're not drafting an elite point guard prospect basically he's not going to be good until three or four years from now and by that point like you're in big trouble as an organization and you either have to plan to bring this guy off the bench which you're not going to do if you draft a guy in the top 10 or you know your offense isn't going to be any good and probably your defense either <laughs> those sound like good options all right also on the scares me list luke Kennard, who uh, our, our ched fart has reported fast rising up the draft boards recently on the strength of his shooty ability and the fact that you know people believe he might be the best shooter in the draft i don't know if i'm as uh quite as optimistic about his shooting ability well no i'm, I'm reasonably optimistic but re- small wingspan poor steal rate and the combination of those two like that that there's there's an obvious story to be written after the fact if he is in fact like not good enough defensively to stay on the court yeah and that could be a problem he does have a little bit more size and people are talking about him maybe being a point guard which in some ways might be better for him if he can just compete which he struggled to do it at duke a lot of times defensively but yeah he's kind of got like that low weird release as well he's i've not been that high on him and we've seen a lot of guys of his ilk not be as good as you might hope i mean just kind of pure shooter guys buddy healed is probably actually the best of that that group but you know nick stauskas even reddick who's like the archetype for him took a long time to, to figure it out and be able to find a way to stay on the court even if he was a good shooter so yeah these kind of uh, and he's like an okay driver but he's not uh, amazing so uh, he's not someone that i felt when i heard that he was rising i was a little surprised but you know i haven't watched uh, remember i haven't watched much of these guys beyond the top 10 but just my overall impression i wasn't like oh man like this guy is really you know looking like a top 15 type of pick we'll be right back with kp but first this from SeatGeek. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals that's one of the ways that they make it so much easier to buy tickets than it used to be when you'd have to go to seven or eight different websites. You'd always be worried, oh, there might be a better deal if I go look at the next one. And before you knew it, you spent 20 minutes just going to all these different sites and trying to save a few bucks. Now you can rest assured that SeatGeek is going to put the options in front of you and you can get to them all in their app or their desktop portal at SeatGeek.com. Next thing that used to take up a bunch of time buying tickets, finding your precise seat, right? Your If it's three rows ahead and two sections to the left, 
Is this a better deal? Is it worth the $10 price difference? SeatGeek now, their technology makes that calculation for you. Their proprietary technology ranks every ticket based on value. So you look at the general section you want to sit in, select the ticket that's the best value and boom you're done you just got your tickets in like two minutes instead of it being this 20 minute process that you still didn't feel good about afterwards because you thought you might have missed out on a better deal every purchase with SeatGeek is also fully guaranteed you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket from sports and concerts to comedy and theater the way to get started with them download the SeatGeek app enter promo code CAPSPACE easy to remember we talk about CAPSPACE all the time in the program of course and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first SeatGeek purchase. So once again, that Capspace code lets them know that you came from us and it'll get you $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Download the SeatGeek app today. I would say Harry Giles scares me in both ways. Like you might pass on him and regret it and you might take him and regret it. Uh, <laughs> I could definitely see, you know, him like Skull LeBissier, if we redrafted today, he would go way higher than he went unquestionably based on what he did at the end of the season for the Kings. So, yeah, well, if we if we redrafted uh, five minutes after the draft was over, he would have gone a lot higher for me. <laughs> at least. Uh, and I know Danny, Danny felt that way, too. Uh, but, you know, yeah, last last year was a, a decent year for us. Uh, previous years, not so much. I, I was uh, a little higher on, say, Jaleel Okafor than maybe I should have been, among others, in 2015. I think all of us were a little higher on Okafor than we should have been. But Giles, you know, he's got the additional complicating factor of not only was he, you know, this highly touted prep prospect, in his case, he was the guy who was coming back from ACL injury and looked like he was coming back from an ACL injury. So how to predict him yeah. forward? And he had another point. surgery too. Like right. He had that, he had that other arthroscopic surgery and he's, he's already had two torn ACLs as well. So yes. There is so yeah. there there there's more concern about yeah it's a permanent lack of athleticism so I I don't know how you tell permanent lack of athleticism from he was just struggling to come back mid season from the those injuries yeah there's really no way to know I mean I guess that's one where you can look at him and work out and stuff and me and then there's uh, to me I would actually if he looks athletic enough in workouts you know okay I I could feel okay about the loss of athleticism aspect. But then the chance of just another injury and, you know, that there's just got to be a ton of damage in there already uh, has to be a concern. I want to finish up here with talking about Markel Fultz and we can then dovetail into the Sixers Celtics trade, which you've written extensively about, of course. You saw Fultz a a ton in person. Let me ask you this. How does he fail? What is the scenario in which he just isn't as good as everyone thinks he's going to be? So I think the main you know, question mark that is is out there with him is, you know, what if he's just not that efficient as a scorer? Because he might not be a great three-point shooter in the NBA. We talked earlier about the, the free throw percentage aspect of projecting three-point shooting, and he was a very poor free throw shooter for a guard, or at least for a good three-point shooter like he was. So that's a that's an open question. And then he wasn't a great finisher at Washington, despite the fact that, you know, he's got the, the size and athleticism that you would think he would be a great finisher yeah i noticed that too that they're just they're all uh, you know you can find him finishes that he made that were tough finishes uh, but just watching him uh, going through you know probably two-thirds of his possessions on the year 
I did see a lot of layups where you're like, oh, he's got this. This is going in, and then he would miss it. You know, so so that that's a little bit of a concern. And I guess just like if he turns out to be a train wreck defensively as well, and, and maybe also the other thing I could see is that maybe he just can't doesn't quite have like the nuclear athleticism to really like create separation. It, you know, his first step is not just like blow you away. He's got a ton of awesome moves, and like his feel right. is outstanding. I really appreciated that he was one of the more enjoyable guys i've ever watched on film because of just the, the way he kind of bounces in and out of his moves and he always seems to have a counter and uh you know i enjoyed his ability to create space in the mid-range for a shot which you know maybe that doesn't go in as often as it did in college because he, he didn't come in with like a reputation of being like some awesome shooter right yeah i mean his reputation wasn't of being a poor shooter i mean there was definitely a thought that he could play either guard position back when we were projecting that he was going to play with DeJounte Murray at UW and that they would kind of alternate going back and forth between being the lead ball handler. But yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, nobody, I don't think people were projecting 40% either. So this is something that you talked about in your trade grades. When Danny and I just recorded on this, and I said basically, and I think you would agree with this, right? That if you just take the average production that you would get from the picks that were exchanged, the Celtics won this trade. You agree with that? Absolutely. And can you quantify at all, like what that difference is? Yeah. So I put together, you know, a new version of a couple of years ago. I did a statistical trade value chart that's similar to what Chase Stewart has done in football, of you know what the surplus value of each pick is you what you'd expect the production to be worth compared to what you actually pay these guys and originally i did it just looking at the rookie contract and knew that one of the issues i had was i probably wasn't valuing the top picks enough because of the fact that i wasn't considering the premium that you can get down the road if by having a superstar who's worth more than a max so i went and looked at that uh on friday after this trade started to be rumored and added that into the trade value chart and when you put those together it shows that the difference between the first and the third pick is about equal to the 13th pick in terms of value. And so it's safe to say that, you know, wherever this pick, and there's a lot of, a wide range of outcomes of where this pick could end up that the Celtics get from the Sixers, it will probably be higher than the 13th pick. So my criticism, and I haven't looked at your method extensively, and perhaps I'm not even qualified to, but my criticism of that would be, you know, I would rather have one guy with $8 million worth of extra value than two guys with $4 million extra dollars worth of value, in part just because it's superstars are really, you know, your top 10 players in the league, especially are what kind of run the league, really drive the value, drive the wins. And it's much easier to find a cert- two $4 million surplus value guys than one you know, dead bang superstar. And is that a fair criticism of that method or no? It is. Yeah. I mean, I did some research on, you know, and I think probably it depends on the team, by the way. So, you know, if you're a team that doesn't have very much talent, you should want the multiple guys. If you're the Celtics, where you already have a number of capable role players and the Sixers maybe fall into this category too, with their depth of of picks and, and young players on the roster, the, there probably is more value to having that one guy. Uh, I think the other aspect of it, though, is, you know, I looked at like basically what's the most extreme argument I can make in favor of the top pick. And that's basically that the only thing I care about is getting someone who is worth more than the maximum salary. So I looked at, you know, over a series of drafts, I forget exactly which drafts I used off the top of my head, uh, the number, uh, the amount of value that players created in terms of wins above replacement above 10 per year, which is more or less 
plus max level production. And if you do it by that, then number one is far and away ahead of everyone else. And even the smoothed version of it says that the number one pick is basically equal to two number three picks. So then the Sixers would have to get a pretty good out or the Celtics would have to get a pretty good outcome from the pick they're getting from the Sixers in the future to make it equivalent in terms of just superstar value. But it doesn't account for the fact that you're paying this guy less money and or these, you know, that sort of thing. Well, just to reiterate what the trade is, was the number one pick is going to be Marco Fultz for number three this year. And then the Lakers pick uh, protected for everything except for two through five. And then if it doesn't fall into that range, then the Kings pick in number 19, that's unprotected. So so that's the deal. Yeah. There's some, going to be some slight tweaks to that, as it turns out. I, I have not been able to confirm it with the second source, though. Oh, Just to the okay. 2019 aspect. The, two, the 2018 has been reported correctly. Oh, that's interesting. Well, that's funny because I was saying that today. Like You would think it would have to be unprotected because if it's protected in any way, then there's a the chance that Boston gets nothing. You know, So maybe then it that's uh that would be interesting um so uh, we'll find out maybe what that is when you can confirm it and leave everyone hanging because uh especially danny if he listens to this he's gonna be like foaming <laughs> foaming at the mouth because he just is so desperate to know everything about pick protection so last thing here you then so so that's the argument from the celtics standpoint two arguments from the sixers standpoint one is ben simmons is kind of a tough guy to fill in around so mark l Fultz, in theory is a perfect fit as the next ball handler next to him like a a guy who can shoot play off the ball in theory and also you know run run the offense as well as a secondary ball handler when Simmons is out of the game and just we weren't going to find that guy drafting Josh Jackson or Jason Tatum would have been a really bad fit with what we already have that almost would have been wasting the pick nobody really seemed to want to trade up to three so this is the only way that we could get value there and then the other one is just that in a similar vein you take the projection not just what your average number one and number three would be but this draft we know who it's going to be it's Marco Fultz it's either probably going to be Jason Tatum who Draft Express has in there right now or Josh Jackson at three so what then is the difference in projection if you throw that in between Fultz and either Tatum or Jackson does that change your assessment of this deal at all it does yeah and and that was in the trade grades that you know if, if you factor that take that into account then instead of having to give the 13th pick uh to make it equivalent value now all of a sudden it shoots up to it has to be the fifth pick yeah so that's actually getting you know fifth pick is probably maybe a median outcome for what it ends up being it's um, yeah it's right around the border or, or an right. average outcome maybe more accurately mm-hmm. in that case but yeah that's uh so so i mean i think it was interesting to me because you gave what the sixers a b and the celtics a, a b plus so like if you were the sixers would you have done this trade Yes, I probably would have done it. And which is the way I grade trades. I I don't know if I've ever really explained this in public is like a C is this is completely does not change our future whatsoever. So anything above a C is I we've improved our future with this trade. I just think the Celtics have potentially done more to improve their future than the Sixers. If you know, especially because of the fact that they're clearly looking at this from the standpoint where we don't think faults is that different from our options at number three. Yeah, no, that does seem to be the case for the Celtics. And I mean, that's and that's what this is really. This just comes down to who's right about Markel Fultz. Is Boston mm-hmm. right that he's not that good, or is Philly right? If Philly's right, they're going to win this trade. If not, then Boston's probably going to win it. Either, well, I would correct that. 
clarify this, not that much better than Josh Jackson or whoever they end up picking at three, because, you know, you can think that Fultz is really good, but just like all of these guys a lot. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true, too. I mean, obviously, if Jackson ends up being better than Fultz then the Celtics won the trade. But uh... it's interesting, though, to go back to the Fultz, you know, the idea that Fultz is a perfect fit next to Simmons. I actually like Lonzo Ball much more in that role than Fultz. Yeah. I mean, I think when you look at, you know, his uh, his three-point range, if not necessarily his relative accuracy and not not his free throw shooting, which wasn't much better than Fultz's, I think I would, if I had to pick one of those two guys is going to be the better shooter in the NBA, I'd go with Ball. And, you know, Fultz, much more of his value is tied up in the ability to run the pick and roll, which he won't be able to do as much playing with Simmons. Yeah. Well, they could also have Simmons be the role man too, or... Yeah, that's know, true. A, that's a good point. At the and four. Then, and then yeah. if Fultz gets to the point where you have to double team and trap him then simmons is the ideal guy to play against that trap much like draymond green steph curry pick and rolls what do you think of dario sarge these days i mean i think a lot depends on how much of a, of a leap he makes in terms of a three-point shooting next year uh, i think it was chris herring who first pointed out that european players tend to shoot much better from three-point range their second year in the nba and if he makes that kind of leap then suddenly he can be he can be a guy who scores with above average efficiency which means he's not just kind of a, a volume shot creator yeah which is it seemed like it's reductive but i called him yesterday you know a good stat or i mean i don't even want to say good stats but high number of stats uh, on a bad team type of guy you can count me as a little bit skeptical on his jumper it looks pretty flat as and those are really it's tough to make nba threes when you shoot a flat shot like that uh he kind of shoots it on the way down too so it's a little i think it's going to be difficult for him to become a great nba three-point shooter you know i think he can make it at 35 percent where you can't just not guard him but it just seems like i don't think his value is ever going to be any higher and he's really now a terrible fit on this team so i think i i would try to move on from him if i were the sixers and see and see what i could get i mean it, I mean, if you Aaron Gordon for sure. <laughs> now the uh, Hennigan regime is no more now, so uh, apparently that will no longer be the case. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, what do you think would be a decent uh, value for Sartre? Like, if you could get like the twentieth pick in this year's draft for him, would you do it? Yeah, I don't know. I might not, just because you know that he's going to be in his prime on that rest of that rookie contract, and they don't really need more young guys, so. I mean, I think, you know, if you put him in a bench role where it's him and, you know, Markel Fultz or him and I, I, if you could figure it out defensively, him and Simmons, like being the two linchpins of the offense, that could be a pretty effective group. Yeah, I just I don't see how he scores except by just like backing his guy down to the rim and then like trying to make a pass. And it's just they're not going to have the spacing for that. And they just are going to hopefully have more efficient options. But I guess the other concern is just, you know, maybe Simmons could get re-injured or, you know, you don't even know how good Simmons is going to be necessarily yet so maybe that's another reason to keep him around and that's one thing that happened here with the Sixers is we haven't seen and we've seen 31 games total out of all three of these guys that are going to be their core now and they've kind of given themselves less outs by trading away one of those future picks to get faults mm-hmm. yeah uh all right any other draft stuff you're you're you wanted to talk about here anyone else any other guys that you really liked that we didn't discuss or anything like that hmm have you have you watched any uh any ACB basketball? Not recently. Yeah, who's there was some guy I didn't even really recognize who was in your production. Alexander, Alexander Vizinkov, who uh, was a guy who was on the draft boards a few years ago, which I think is like why retroactively he's still in my draft database all these years later. 
but huh. then like had kind of fallen out of favor, despite the fact that he's become like a good starter for FC Barcelona in in the ACB. So uh, he seems what, like I mean, somebody who could be a nice What position is he? Like, what's his game like? He's kind of a high a, a high two point percentage. Shoots a lot of threes. Not necessarily a great percentage. Uh, you know, three with size, six eight listed at six eight two hundred is what I have him. Okay, yeah, they can always use guys like that if they can defend even slightly. They could be useful. And actually, I think would you say it's fair that you've had your most success with guys who translate really well from European leagues? Lately, yes, that has definitely been the case. I mean, you look at the last few drafts since I've been doing this at ESPN. It's uh, you know Capella, Nurkic, Jokic. Uh, we're like the main three all in that same draft. And then maybe Chris Hernan Gaps, Gomez Porzingis. you had highly too, right? Yep. Willie, Willie Hernan Gomez, Juan Hernan Gomez. You had, it was another guy too that you were. Not, not taking a victory lap on that one, but yet, but yes. Um, are there any guys that you've had ranked really highly who haven't really worked out from European Among leagues European in the last couple of years? Yeah. Um, I mean, his Zonia, you know, had fairly high, but that was mostly because of where he was on the draft board. Um, yeah, Hazonia's translations were bad, right? They were okay. Oh, well, I mean, Moutier is not really European, and it was also based on seven games. I mean, Bender would be the other guy who may fall into that category. Again, too yeah, because he was though. number number two for you last year, right? Yes. So certainly not off to a good start in that regard. Yeah, but he's also incredibly young, so I'm definitely too early to to write him off potentially. But there you go. So those those translations are infallible, and uh, <laughs> Alexander exactly. Vazenkov will be the next European superstar. You heard it here. <laughs> yes sergey skarasev was pretty good that's not looking yeah. great that one didn't uh, didn't work out what uh yeah karasev i think you know the character stuff on him didn't turn out too too great uh a little self-promotion here which mock off-season team are you most excited to pilot of the 10 that you have been assigned well, suddenly the Pacers are looking like a very interesting mock offseason oh, team baby. to have. Man, I hope I hope he doesn't get traded before. Right. Uh, well, although the mock offseason is really more about free agent signing, so I kind of hope he does actually get traded beforehand. But we may, we may, if he hasn't been, we might have to do a special like throw in trades as well before we even get into it. That'll be fun. Yeah, I mean, last year we tried to do offers for a couple guys at the start, right? So I also yeah, have, I mean, I think it only was like you know Boris Dr or something like got moved on like two years ago actually in the Lamarcus Aldridge signing. Um, yeah, I feel like there was someone that you guys wanted me to take offers on, and I really wasn't interested in actually trading them. They m- might have been uh, <laughs> like Kevin Love or someone. I, I can't remember who. Uh, well, let me go listen the, to all four hours of it and yeah, find it. There you go. I also have the, <laughs> the Celtics should be entertaining. The Spurs potentially could be entertaining. Uh, I'm gonna have to negotiate with myself self is the cavaliers if the paul george if a no paul george trade has gone down so i i think there's definitely some interesting teams in here yeah no yeah you get you actually have got a lot of of interesting ones then yeah so for those who are hungering for the mock off season it's going to be delayed feldman is getting married that's his excuse this weekend so uh can, can tweet him congratulations on getting married by the way uh all right we're we're degenerating here thanks for coming on this is always uh, one of my most fun podcasts to do and then uh, we'll be talking more with uh mike schmitz going to do some more draft stuff uh, later this week so stay tuned uh, for that and uh, hopefully we'll get to malik monk as well i still want to make sure i run out the top 10 there give you some thoughts on him but thanks for uh, kevin pelton for joining us and we'll talk to you all next time it's your run Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.